The conquest of space is worth the risk of life. Our God-given curiosity will force us to go there ourselves because, in the final analysis, only man can fully evaluate the moon in terms understandable to other men. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh, yeah, baby, Gus. The double G. Gus Grissom. Gus Grissom, who unfortunately did indeed give his life 52 years ago this week in the Apollo 1 fire. 27th of January, 1957. Rest in peace, Gus. What a quote. Yeah, the only fatalities of the Apollo mission. Who was the the guy in Batman? And don't say Batman. What, the bloke who played Batman? That name reminds me of, of some character from, uh, from Batman. I don't know. I'll look into it. I'll tell you what, what that's a hell of a cliffhanger to uh, say at the end of the show, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's awesome. Keep listening <laughs> to find out the name. You've really got me. Well, I'll tell you what, Matt, let me ask you this question. Mm-hmm. On this day, 25th of January, what, what, what would you mm. think if I'd said the year 1736? I'd get all excited because it's my favourite, one of my favourites. I'm actually, he's not one of my favourites. I've just read that uh, he had beef. He had biff with Laplace. Laplace. Oh, God. Was there some rivalry here? Yeah, I think there was. Joseph Louis Lagrange. You absolutely love Lagrange, don't you? I do, Lagrange. His other name that he went by is Giuseppe Luigi Lagrange. Oh, he went from French French to Italian then. He was Italian and moved to France. So oh. he's an Italian-French mathematician stroke astronomer. Of course, well, we I... all know him because of Lagrange points, but he did beaucoup de maths. Oh, yeah, he did. I, I wanted to open up with a Lagrange quote, but instead I found a quote about Lagrange by Augustus de Morgan, which I thought was really funny because I've done this very thing in a lecture once. Oh, you did? <laughs> Ready? Here we go. Lagrange, in one of the later years of his life, imagined that he had overcome the difficulty of the parallel axiom. He went so far as to write a paper, which he took with him to the Institute and began to read it. But in the first paragraph, something struck him that he had not observed. He muttered, Il faut que j'y songe encore, and put the paper back in his pocket. Which, of course, means I, I must think again about it. So he obviously, halfway through reading the first paragraph, thought, oh, no, I've got all this wrong. <laughs> it's kind of like our podcast. Yeah. We often say that, that, just not in French. Yeah. It's very, I'm very, I'm very cool. sorry to French listeners who didn't like my way I kind of did it. Yeah, definitely said something else. Maybe uh, Lagrange had a bit of an Italian accent when he spoke in French too, so who knows? You reckon? Do you know what else happened on this day, January the 25th, 1995? What do you reckon? Well, it made me think of the Norwegian rocket incident. Oosh! Russia almost launches a nuclear attack after it mistakes Black Brandt 12, a Norwegian research rocket, for a US Trident missile. That's a hell of a mistake. Oh my God, can you imagine? Ooh. Just goes to show the dangers of rocketry. It's a, it's a scary one, that. So what did you do that I didn't bother doing this week? I set my alarm... To quarter to five, I yep. got up and I looked at the beautiful and unbelievable clear night sky for, for UK of the mm. super blood wolf moon. Oh. It was absolutely 
glorious. And I didn't think, because every time this happens, I always wake up early or I stay up late and it's too bloody cloudy. Oh, clouds. Thanks, UK. Yeah, well, that... But it was beautifully clear day and I was thinking, maybe, just maybe, this is my time. And it was. It, yeah, was, it was lovely. But I'd been up very, very late and had to get up and drive five hours. So I decided not to do that. Because I texted you, be didn't I? And I said, are you going to yeah. check it? And what did you reply to me? I says, I said, it's going to be rubbish, I think I said. You said, nah. Like you said, nah, it's going to be shit. <laughs> and I was like, oh, what do I do? Because, you know, Matt knows loads more than me. But I was thinking, you know what? I'm going to go with my instincts on this one. And I'm yeah. glad I did. Can you believe this? That one of the genius things that happened was that telescopes around the world picked up the moon being hit by a meteorite. No way, I didn't during know this. That, yeah, during during that eclipse. There's quite a few little videos and, and pictures on the web are starting to appear now. But yeah, how about that? I need to check that out. That's amazing. That's what happens when you've got no atmosphere, Matt. Yeah, so it, it made me think, how many times does the moon get hit like that? I was thinking, is that a massive coincidence? I don't think it's that big a coincidence in the end because it, it, get, it gets hit about every three days or so with objects over 10 metres across. Of course, it gets hit all the time by tiny objects. But yeah, 10 metres across, it's being hit every three days. Thank goodness. That's crazy. Isn't it? We have an atmosphere that doesn't allow us to get hit because we would get hit so much. Tons and tons of stuff rains down on Earth every year. So, Matt, yeah, what's your favourite song with with rains down in in the lyrics? Uh, the Who, I think. Rain yeah. down on me. What about yeah, Phil Collins? One. Oh yeah, <laughs> I wish it would rain down down on me. Mm, I don't know. So tweet tweet in with your favourite lyrics. Yeah, uh, Peter Gabriel actually. Peter Gabriel. Or oh, what about Slayer? Rains in blood. That's a bit different, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, rain in blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Rain on blood moon. Good. Yeah, Good. We could, they could, maybe we could write to them and they could sort of rejig the lyrics a little Super bit. Super Slayer Wolf Blood Moon tour. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now let's stick with the moon, Matt. Issa seemed to have gone moon mad this week. Yeah. I, a, a lot of their posts have been about the moon. And uh, there was one big press release that mm. came through that the Ariane Group has signed a contract with Issa to examine the possibility of going to the moon before... 2025 Ooh, and nice. you'll you'll love this because you love this idea with the aim of mining regolith from which it is possible to extract water and oxygen thus enabling an independent human presence on the moon producing the fuel needed yes. for more distant ex exploratory missions i mean yeah. i've only been speaking about this for three years in the hope that it's going to happen and it's it's well, happening yeah, they, yes here we go so yeah the the Get ariane in. 6 the Ariane 6 is uh, the four booster version of the Ariane 6 would uh, enable Europe to be able to do this because it's it can carry enough, you know, oomph and enough uh, payload up to lunar orbit to be able to kind of uh, complete this mission. Love that. Yeah. Take take that China. Yes. Your move. Ariane Group will be one of the partners in La Lune de Voyage, Real Voyage Imaginaire. It's getting better. Which means yeah, thanks. The moon, a journey from the real to the imaginary, which, which seems like a, a bit of a lift from the British Interplanetary Society motto. It does, doesn't it? I think there's some royalties to be paid there. Yeah, and it's going to be an exhibition at the Grand Palais in Paris. So I quite fancy going to see that. I think we should. 
Yeah, that's going to be running from the 3rd of April to the 22nd of July. Well, I can see a spring trip coming on. Yeah. This kind of trip is going to be a collaboration between Ariane Group, Ariane Space, a German startup company called PT Scientists, which are going to provide the lunar lander, a Belgian SME called Space Application Services, which will provide the ground control facilities, communications, and service operations. Nice. 100% European innovative consortium. Yeah. That's what we want, isn't it? More of that, please. Please. There are, of course, other Euro Lunar projects on the go, like, for example, the European Service Module as part of the Orion spacecraft, NASA's Orion spacecraft. So that's pretty cool. They're also working with Roscosmos on Lunar Reserves, which apparently is to take European... The Russians are going to carry some European tech to the moon that will drill into the surface and nice. analyse the lunar terrain. Uh, again, to sort of see if you can uh, process that into drinkable water or breathable oxygen for the moon. And, of course, there's the Heracles mission, which could take off in 2028. Would you like a quote from the CEO of Ariane Group? Yeah, you go on then, yeah. This first contract, symbolically announced on the day of the lunar eclipse, is a milestone for Ariane Group which has long time been working on technological proposals for space logistics servicing, explained André <laughs> Hubert Roussel. No relation. No relation. Well, he might be. A Roussel, I believe, is the French version of Russell. It is also an opportunity to recall the ability of Ariane 64 to carry out moon missions for its institutional customers, with a payload capacity of up to 8.5 metric tons in this year, marking the 50th anniversary of man's first steps on the moon, Ariane Group will thus support all current and future European projects in line with its mission to guarantee independent, sovereign access to space for Europe. Wow. Beautiful. Uh, you did actually say during that piece, which I don't think he would have done, you said, Ariane 64, where, right. of course, you meant Ariane 64. De definitely, definitely. I've got a bit of a bone to pick with Issa, though. Oh, I wish you wouldn't start with that sentence. They've, Like I said, they've been posting a lot about uh, moon stuff, and they posted one a very good educational kind of page on their website called Teach with the Moon, which has got yeah. lots of fun facts and stuff. One of the facts is, why does the moon look bigger at times? Question mark. And the answer that they have put is due to its elliptical orbit. But I'm going to say I don't think, I don't think that that's true. I think... You really cannot perceive, like with your eye, whether the moon has got bigger or smaller due to its elliptical orbit. That's why no. I kind of. That's why I don't. When people go on and on about the supermoon and all that, I, it's just it. It really doesn't look any bigger when it's closer or further away. The photos that you see, sometimes I question the Photoshop. Well, no, well, no, no. It's not about Photoshop. That's that's about using a very, very uh, long focal length. No, I just mean against a city, you know, where it looks absolutely huge. It's like, hmm. well, yeah, but that's yeah, but that but that's the point. If you're a long way away from the city as well, and you're using a huge focal point, that's exactly the the effect you get. Right. So if you've like got a four hundred millimeter uh, lens on your camera, 
then that it will kind of give you that effect. You've just got to sort of frame it up right. What people do all the time. How, how much? How much bigger in its elliptical is peak elliptical orbit when it's closest to Earth? How much bigger is the Moon from the furthest away to us? Do we know? I don't know. This is what I'd like to know. But the real thing that makes the moon look bigger wish I was. is, and which is going to be my space word of the week. Here we go. Is the moon illusion. Ooh. This the sounds moon like, illusion. This sounds like the kind of thriller that I would love to see Matt Russell be the protagonist in. <laughs> the moon illusion is one of my favourite things about space because anyone this week could go outside and witness the moon illusion for themselves. So the moon illusion is an optical illusion, which uh, which means the moon appears much larger when it's near the horizon than when it does when it's higher up in the sky. You mm. would swear that it was much bigger when it's near the horizon than when it's right up in the sky. Mm. But if you got if you got like a penny and completely obscured it, it would be the same. It would be the same size that the penny held at the same distance would obscure both. So there's something going on. And this has caused arguments for centuries about what is going on. And no one, no one has agreed exactly what it is. There's, there was even a 1989 book called The Moon Illusion, uh, which was 24 chapters of various different <laughs> researches. Well, I've got all an reaching idea. Di- different conclusions, yeah. Isn't it because when it's on the backdrop of Earth... So if you're mm. looking if you're looking out over some hills and then you see the moon, mm. you know, mm-hmm. disappearing. Mm-hmm. But then, so so it looks big then compared to the little trees that are its backdrop. But then when you look up in the sky, the sky is obviously huge, so it doesn't look as big. Could it be something as simple as that? That is regarded as the kind of prime hypothesis. So that's yes. I think that's. So I think it. that's known as the apparent distance hypothesis. No, it's the Franklin hypothesis. Yes. <laughs> so intervening bodies between the object and the observer right. um, kind of give give the moon a scale, but there's no intervening objects between the Earth and the moon when it's high, so the perceived distance is too short, hmm. so the moon appears smaller than on the horizon. But the problem with that is it's scientifically tautological. In other words, it explains perception as consequences of perception. <laughs> so in some right. ways, it's a, it, yeah, it's a circular argument. Uh, so the moon looks further away because it looks larger is a ridiculous thing to say. So, um, uh, And most people, 90% say the horizon moon looks both larger and closer than the zenith moon. So the apparent distant hypothesis clearly isn't the full story here. So... Mm. Very early ones were things like the atmospheric refraction hypothesis, which is very dubious and hasn't been taken seriously since the 17th century that basically says that the atmosphere kind of uh, refracts the moon and makes it look bigger. That's kind of been debunked. You've got the relative size hypothesis. So the perceived size of an object depends not only on its retinal size, but also on the size of the objects in its immediate visual environment. Yes. Uh, so, which, which for me, I think is better than the um, apparent distant hypothesis, and th- this is known as the Ebbinghaus illusion. Ooh. So you can, you can, if you look up Ebbinghaus illusion, you can, you can see how that would work. And there's another really good one, which is a great one to do, which is if you look through your legs when the when the moon's on the horizon, the moon illusion goes. So if you look upside down and look through your legs, it, it the moon illusion goes. I have uh, done but that then, before. 
Yeah. So, but that might be just because the retina is uh, the image is inverted on the retina, and and you can actually do a similar sort of effect, effect by raising your eyes or tilting your head when you're in, uh, in an upright posture, and it and it reduces only very very slightly the illusion. But what I will say is this: the, the other day, I mean, the, the one of the, I've been thinking about it all week is a really good way to see the moon illusion. I did it this week. So the day after the wolf moon, we almost had, obviously, we still had a very full moon in the sky. And on the morning, I was walking down into Guildford and I, and I was very, very high up on a hill. And it was a, a really, really clear morning and the moon was massive in the sky and mm. it was right over Guildford Cathedral. It was absolutely huge over Guildford Cathedral. And I picked up my smartphone because I, I, I hadn't taken my camera to work. It was really annoying because I would have been able, if I'd, you know, I've got a big focal length on my camera, I would have done a much better job. But I picked up my smartphone and the minute you look at the, the image in your smartphone screen without even taking a picture, the moon suddenly becomes tiny. You're looking mm. at the screen and you can see that the moon is tiny, but then you look back up and the moon looks massive again. Great, so yeah. I, th I actually think it's got more to do with the fact that it's the moon, that, that somehow in your brain, uh, your brain is actually creating the image of the moon and, and it's not actually what you're perceiving, that, that somehow your perception is much more uh, to do with the the image that your brain is creating rather than the one that you're seeing through your visual cortex. And for me, the, the, none of the above, none of those hypotheses that we're talking about fully explains that, how much tinier it looks in the screen of your mobile phone. That is really interesting, actually. It's yeah. a little bit like when I went to Japan for the first time, still the best day of my life when I entered a lift with seven other grown men, adult men, <laughs> and I was the tallest. So yeah, that's cool. You know, at at five foot seven and a half, I was I was so happy. And but yeah, but you is know, that half in your Cuban heels? <laughs> <laughs> Look, don't don't mock my Cuban heels. They've got me in some good situations. God, presumably, I'd be a freak in in Japan then. Well, you, you're just the same as here. <laughs> so, um, well, we should talk about SpaceX. Um, we should talk about SpaceX, yeah, shouldn't we? It's been not an good, up and not... down week. So, the Starship, uh, mm. Spa SpaceX's Starship Hopper. Uh, so, so the test was severely damaged by strong winds down in South Texas at the launch facility, and Musk said, "I just heard." 50 mile per hour winds broke the mooring blocks late last night and fairing was blown over. We'll take a few weeks to repair. So, uh, not been a great week, but there we go. Yeah. Well, it Happens. only took a few weeks. It only took a few weeks to build. So, you yeah. hope it would only take a few. That That's a bummer, though, isn't it? It that's is a, bit a, bummer. Of a bummer. Meanwhile, on the other hand. Yeah. Bezos is having way more luck. Oh, Beza. Yeah. So, this week, we, we, we had the 10th flight of the new Shepherd. And it was yeah. a total success. Kaboom. I think they're very much online for this late 2019 commercial launch. And they'll actually start their actual mission. Yeah. And talking of lines, Matt, it achieved 66 miles a couple over the Kármán line. Exactly. Congratulations, Jeff. Not such good luck for Mr. Eric Bow. Oh, what's happened? Well, he's been replaced on the Starliner test flight by another astronaut, ISS astronaut, Edward Mike Fink. 
Oh. Uh, he's been stood down due to a medical issue. It's quite a rare thing, this, but uh, not without precedent. Of course, Ken Mattingly from up, uh, was stood down because he was exposed to German measles just before the Apollo 13 flight, so lost Ooh. his place on that. Uh, however, Bo's going to have a straight swap, so he'll replace Fink as the assistant to the chief for commercial crew in the astronaut office at NASA's Johnson Space Center. I can't imagine the... Disappointment. Uh, the disappointment and frustration is one thing, but could you imagine knowing the person who gave you measles that literally took your only chance of going into space and then you never went? Imagine how you would feel about them, knowing that, yes, it was an accident and they would never have meant it, but you would not... Oh, Even God. worse... Even worse, Ken Mattingly didn't even get German measles. He was just exposed to it, and they couldn't take the risk. Oh. But he never actually got it in the end. Oh, God, I feel sick. I actually feel sick <laughs> for, for him. <laughs> well, you'd imagine he would have been feeling really sick until the Apollo 13 accident happened, and then he, in the back of his head he must have oh been going, God, oh, course. my God, this maybe maybe I've been saved a fate worse than death. And then, oh and, then, and then when it all went right, he must have thought, ah, oh, that was my chance to be a hero. Well, I'm feeling for you, Eric. That is, uh, that's a tough cookie to swallow. But hopefully you will get to go up at some point soon. One of my bare favourite missions. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the one that I picked as my favourite for 2019, the Israeli Bereshit Moonlander, yeah. is on its way to Cape Canaveral Ooh. for a mid-February launch. Swanning down the, uh, the what's it called? The red carpet. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Space IL's privately developed moon lander, Bereshit, to launch aboard a SpaceX Falcon 9 as one of at least three other payloads. And then it will spend a couple of months travelling to the moon and land in the Sea of Serenity, the oh. Mare Serenitatus. Beautiful. <laughs> Serenitatus, a lunar mare located to the east of the Mare Imbrium. And it'll land in April. I'm looking forward to it for one. Absolutely, more. Jamie. Yeah. A few months ago, I interviewed a chap called Bernard Chemul. Another Frenchman. And he yes. currently is the Inspector General of Caness. Oh, lovely. A uh, European uh, space legend, Bernard Chemul. He was Inspector. He is currently Inspector General of Caness, but he was the Program Manager of Ariane Five and Vega. He was the deputy director of the Guiana Space Centre. He was the director of the Guiana Space Centre. And he's been the European Space Agency head of infrastructure project in the Directorate of Space Transportation. Sounds like he's a heavyweight. He is. Do you want to listen to this interview? Do I? Écoute. The Interplanetary Podcast. Putting the ace Back into space. Uh, I'm joined by Bernard Chamul, who is the Inspector General at Kness. Uh, and uh, hello, Bernard, how are you? Hello, I'm fine. Thanks very much for taking our call. What I really want to do is, yeah, is, is to listen to your very long and varied career uh, as part of uh, European space. So if you would just like to tell us a little bit about yourself, how you started and some of the jobs that you got into. 
Yeah, I've started in the 1982 in the CNES, in the French Space Agency. As a, I've had this uh, occupation uh, for, uh, let's say, 10 years, about 10 years. And then uh, I've managed the team of engineers in mechanical studies and uh, aerodynamical studies. And then I have been technical director for launcher development and exploitation till uh, in the CNES, directorate of launchers. During this time, I have uh, participated to the development of Ariane 4, Ariane 5 project. And uh, I have been involved in the project called Hermes which was a, a project of space plane, like a shuttle, a European shuttle. But uh, this project had been stopped in the soon uh, of the 90s. After uh, this technical uh, occupation, I have been appointed to uh, manage the Ariane 5 program uh, in CNES. So I have been a manager of the Ariane 5 for uh, making the exploitation. The, the launcher was developed. And uh, the question was to have uh, uh, industrialization and exploitation of the launcher. And uh, I have managed all these activities. And in uh, 2008, I have decided to join uh, French Guiana as a deputy director of the uh, launch base French Guiana, approximately four years. And I was in charge of uh, safety and uh, security and environmental aspect. And then, so I was director of the launch range for four years and a half, so involved in all aspects, uh, operational aspects, social aspects, and uh, political aspects, because there is a long uh, interaction with uh, political uh, uh, people. In uh, There is a strong interaction with political people. I had to come back in uh, France because my contract has been finished. And uh, so uh, at the end, uh, I joined Eva as a head of project of uh, infrastructure to devise about, about the future of uh, launch infrastructure in Europe. And finally, I came back to CNES as general inspector in charge of internal control in CNES and ethics and uh, conformity. Let me take you back to Ariane 4. Were you was everyone on the Ariane 4 team surprised by just how successful it was? Was it one, was it a project that you knew was going to be that successful or or, or did it take everyone by surprise? Yes, there was a lot of success with Ariane 4. During the development and during the exploitation of Ariane 4, we have had to face too many failures and we have had a learn of uh, we have learned uh, a lot of things uh, when we have dealt with this failure, technically, but also in the uh, project management. And uh, we have improved all our uh, procedure and all our organization with uh, this drawback. And finally, uh, with Ariane 4, uh, we have had a very high performance launcher with a, a very high quality so it was a, a very good success. You moved into Ariane 5, and of course Ariane 5 has been extremely reliable. With the, when it came to the Hermes space plane, what was what was the what what was that mm-hmm. like, and 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 what was it like to 
finally have the program cancelled was was that a shock or was it, or, or, or could everyone see that the that that was coming oh the the, the program was uh, well uh, mastered technically speaking so uh, we have had to learn uh, a lot of things and uh, we have got a lot of experience in the development uh, of space space vehicle for reentry and so on but uh, it was a very expensive program and the program was not compatible with the uh, money available in Europe to, to develop Ariane 5. And uh, mm. in parallel, there were uh, the development of Columbus and so on. So it was a, a decision of um, ministry at the ministry level to cancel the program to stop. How did that feel? Was everyone a little bit disappointed? Did people feel as though some of the other programs deserved the chop rather than than Hermes? Yes, uh, the, the people, of course, was very disappointed. But I think that we have got a lot of experience in the uh, management program and in development of new technologies. For instance, we have developed uh, new tiles for thermal protections. And uh, this technology was not uh, available uh, in Europe before the, uh, the Hermes program. And after, so industry have got uh, this uh, know-how. We have developed also, uh, also uh, tools uh, to make predictions, uh, aerodynamical prediction, and so on. And all these facilities and tools was used to other programs like uh, IXV, which was a demonstrator of uh, reentry body, which has been launched uh, later on by uh, Vega successfully. So anyway, even if this program, Hermes program was stopped, we have got a lot of experience. This experience has been uh, profitable for other programs. Uh, what was your involvement with bringing Soyuz to Guyana? Yes, I have been uh, involved in the Soyuz uh, development uh, when I was in French Guyana because I was in charge of uh, security aspect and safety. And so uh, during this, this program, the main difficulty was to reach an agreement with the Russian part in order to manage the safety during the launch of Soyuz. There was a lot of discussion, a lot of exchange with the Russian part to develop the process in order to ensure the safety during the launch. Because the safety principles adopted in Russia are very different to the safety principles adopted in Europe. So, and uh, there was a, a fight, I would say a fight, of culture between Russian and European part in order to, to reach an agreement. But anyway, uh, we have succeeded and we, we uh, now uh, f- so use fly without any problem uh, concerning the safety. And we have developed particular equipment for Soyuz in order to allow the flight from the French Guiana. This uh, development brings us technical know-how, sure, but allows to share uh, with Russians the approach for safety to, to find a, fi- a final agreement uh, with, with them through discussions and through uh, 
I would say, a concession. So with the um, with the Russians involved, obviously, with the Soyuz in French Guiana, was, was there any time where... They were a bit cagey about secrets, or and and that and and it was always hard to get around certain elements of you know, uh, basically I guess uh, yeah, just secrets around their particular space program. Is what's the sort of main problem there? Yes, uh, we have had to to manage this kind of thing. First, there was a, a security committee. A security committee about uh, secrets. Uh, this security committee was a Russian and France uh, committee. There was two kinds of secrets. The first coming from Russia, because Russia do- doesn't uh, want to share the technology, the launcher technology with the European part. So Russia wants to have a protection of Soyuz. And European part could demonstrate that all the measures taken for protecting the launcher are correct to protect the uh, uh, Russian technology. And secondly, Europe have some requests about the protection of its own technology. We had to discuss about the access of Russian part uh, in the launch launch uh, in French Guiana. And we should discuss about what kind of access we can allow to, to the Russian part. That, that was the main discussion. And uh, it was a long, long-term long discussion. At the end, we, we have got a very good agreement. And uh, now uh, there is a, a very high uh, confidence between uh, European part and Russian part. And the, the people uh, work uh, Fantastic. Well yeah, today. I mean, I, I was in French Guiana uh, a couple of months ago, or a month and a half ago or so. And the one thing that is noticeable is just how well lots of different nations are able to just work together including russia in that list is quite phenomenal yeah yeah, yeah. but uh, for instance uh, for american people who work in french guiana uh, we have a lot of uh, project coming from the united states and we have we have had to discuss with the united states uh, uh, administration uh, in order to demonstrate that Russian people uh, have no access to uh, uh, U- uh, U.S. Uh, satellites. So they was also uh, very interested by, about the, the protection yeah. of secrets. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So during your Ariane 5 uh, days, wh- what, was the, what was the sort of main challenges and what was the really interesting parts of that program? Uh, there is uh, many, many things, uh, because uh, Ariane 5, uh, you know, Ariane 5 for me starts since uh, 1987, and I work on Ariane 5 up to uh, 2008. So it was a really a very long period involved in Ariane 5, first by the development, there was a lot of uh, challenges, in, uh, technically speaking, because the launcher was a very high-performance uh, launcher with uh, new technologies. And, uh, for instance, uh, I was after the, the first flight, we discovered a lot of uh, unpredicted uh, behavior, and uh, we have had to, to correct uh, some uh, anomalies. For instance, we have had to to modify the control loop uh, the, uh, with 
the, the, the servo actuators uh, uh, because it was not well adapted at the first flight uh, due to the high loads induced by these uh, actuators into the launcher. I was involved in acoustic problem because Ariane 5 with a high performance was a very noisy launcher and uh, the, 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 the main challenge was how to reduce the noise for the satellites because the satellites are very sensitive to the noise. The main uh, technical problem I had to face. But uh, after the flight, I was involved in the uh, success, but also in failure. And there was a very big failure, which was uh, very uh, dangerous for the future of the program at the time where, uh, when the failure occurred. Uh, for instance, uh, the first flights of the new version, the, the version we, which flights presently, the first flight was a failure and due to the uh, bad dimensioning of the, of the engine. The return to flight program uh, was very, very extensive program with a lot of activities, a lot of uh, phenomena to understand because it was uh, the, the engine, very complicated to, to have a model of working of the engine. We had to develop during one year and a half uh, a new model of the engine uh, to understand how the, the engine works and so on. And we have had a very, very uh, big uh, staff uh, involving all the team, industry uh, and uh, agencies. So at the time, we, we have learned to, to work uh, together very, very uh, closely between industry and agency and realize uh, that uh, we work uh, as a family very close together in order to solve the problem. Uh, anyway, after, uh, after the, the solving this problem, there was a, a problem of quality of Ariane 5 because uh, the, the, the launcher was launcher issued from the development, but we have had very few launch to, to challenge the production. The, the, and and, and uh, we have discovered a lot of uh, production uh, qualities, uh, non-qualities. It was a very various problem. Uh, for instance, the production of uh, of the engine chamber, because uh, uh, the first uh, batch of production, half of the batch was bad and uh, can be uh, food to the dust bin, <laughs> because uh, there was a crack on the chamber, which was not acceptable. So we have had to, to solve this kind of problem. We have had a, a problem of uh, pollution, uh, cleanliness, a lot of things uh, concerning uh, the production. And it takes a long time. Uh, the first flight of uh, the new version of Ariane 5, the last version, the Ariane 5 ECA, the, fly, the, the launcher which flies presently. The first flight was in uh, 2002, 
But uh, we can consider that in 2008, the, the industrialization uh, was okay and the launcher was a project uh, without a lot of uh, non-qualities. It's obviously lots of little incremental changes and going back and saying this wasn't quite right and uh, all the way through Ariane 5's development. So have you been involved with the Ariane 6 project at all? And I have been involved in some reviews, but not in the development. Because uh, So after 2008, I was in the French Guiana, and uh, my job was uh, expectation was to launch on time, very often a year, and to manage the launch range. This mm. is a really other problem. The problem, my occupation at the time was to be sure that uh, the safety is okay, the security is okay, the uh, operational uh, system was available to perform the launch uh, on time and uh, to solve a social problem because uh, we have had a lot of social discussion with the union and uh, to represent uh, externally the launch uh, range to represent uh, to uh, the, the territorial uh, community, uh, for, for instance, in the uh, uh, Kourou town, uh, in the French Guiana authorities and so on. So there was a lot of... Uh, things in terms of representation in the political uh, environment. I, I, this always fascinates me, this element of uh, people's careers where they start off as engineers and uh, eventually sort of work their way up to doing things like sorting out civil unrest in in French Guiana. How, how does that journey actually take place from, from what seem on the surface very, very different jobs? My education is an engineer education, <laughs> but I was not prepared to uh, uh, to have the job of uh, the director of uh, the French Guiana Launch Range uh, because it's uh, so various uh, uh, activities. I think that for young people, the, my main uh, advice is uh, first to be interested in technical because we we can be. Uh, uh, very efficient if we uh, can master the technical aspect of launcher or, or of the job that they are in charge, but then to be open to mm-hmm. to be uh, open to have an open mind in other aspects, social aspect, uh, societal aspect, because for instance. What is very, very important today is to take care about environmental uh, aspect uh, in our job and the, uh, how our job can have some uh, impact in societal and environmental aspect. I, I think it, it is important and uh, the people should, be, should have an open mind uh, on all these aspects, including uh, uh, juridical aspect. So I've, I've noticed that you uh, do quite a bit of uh, teaching and uh, outreach. Is that something that you enjoy as well? I teach uh, in the engineering school 
a lot of time, uh, very, very often. Uh, and uh, I think it's, it is important to forward the, uh, our uh, experience to young people. It's important for, for the society, but also for, for myself, too. Because when you, you teach something, you should be clear. You should be clear on the topic you teach. It's uh, very useful for people to to teach and to to uh, to have to to participate to our outreach program. I think it's fundamental. That's why I, I am always pleased to participate to university problem. I, I was, for instance, involved in the uh, foundation of. Uh, French Guiana University, and I, I chair the first uh, academic uh, board, and uh, it was uh, really interesting because uh, I brought my uh, view of manager of uh, the operational site, like uh, French, uh, like the launch range. But also, uh, I had to face about problem of research, problem of uh, society, and uh, it was uh, also very useful for me. Couldn't agree more. Teaching is just a fantastic way of learning yourself and paying it forward. I've only got one more question because I know you, that you've got to go soon. Where do you see uh, European space transportation going in the next sort of 10, 20 years? Ah, good question. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, for the European, uh, so I think that uh, I, uh, I think that uh, uh, the situation is is uh, really today uh, difficult uh, because uh, we have a lot of uh, competition, and uh, I think that uh, we should uh, should be innovative. I think that the innovation is the reusable, is in the reusable launchers, and we should develop uh, this technology very quick, very fast, in order to be able to to be in the competition market. So, it's clear. Secondly, we should be interested in the exploration, and uh, the space transportation should be involved deeply in the uh, new vehicle in order to uh, develop new capability for exploration because this development will pull innovation and will give to the industry enough uh, know-how in order to be more competitive in the commercial market. And I think that uh, space transportation for agencies, I speak about ESA or uh, CNES or DLA or ASI, should be concentrated in innovation vehicle, maybe uh, by development of demonstrator in order to develop new capabilities in technologies, uh, new know-how, not only technical know-how, but also in management, in organization mm. and so on. I'm assuming in 10 years' time you, you wouldn't see um, ESA having a reusable vehicle, but perhaps in 20 years' time that would be on the cards? Or, or, or could you see it being able to be turned around in, in such a short time? I think that 
it could be shorter because the competition is very hard and uh, I don't see how uh, we can reduce the cost of launch without reusable. So I think that at least a part of the vehicle could be reusable, let's say, within 10 years. But after, we can imagine more uh, ambitious vehicle. Uh, for instance, today, the reusability is only for the first stage of the launcher. But uh, in the long term, we can imagine reusability of uh, uh, the complete launcher. And uh, it's more difficult. It's a bigger, biggest, or bigger challenge than the challenge of today. We do not forget that in parallel, we should develop know-how in order to uh, have a, a low-cost vehicle for exploration. Uh, I don't speak about human respiration. Uh, I think that uh, robotic respiration is uh, is okay. We should have a, a vehicle able to go to Mars, a vehicle able to to make a services in orbit, like a space tug, in order to prepare powerful vehicle to 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 explore uh, other uh, planet or uh, asteroid in the solar system. So uh, a, a kind of in-orbit uh, infrastructure? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, we, we should have a look on tourism, space tourism too, because uh, it's not important today, but maybe in the future it could be important. There's a lot of initiative on space tourism. Today it is not fully available or uh, f- fully completed. Uh, so the, 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 this initiative uh, are in progress, but we should look at uh, this kind of thing because if one initiative reach one success, this can be uh, developed uh, very, uh, very rapidly, could uh, drive uh, new technologies. For instance, Elon Musk uh, have uh, this idea in mind, so uh, we can, we, we should look at, but it's not the priority today. <laughs> um, what has been your absolute highlight of your career so far is there is there one day or one week or one project that you you step back from and go wow i really enjoyed that i think that uh, Ariane 5 uh, was uh, really the, 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 the project where i have learned a lot of things i have uh, had a lot of friends <laughs> True. So, because there was a lot of success, a lot of satisfaction, but uh, there was some uh, very hard failure to uh, to overcome, and uh, we have learned a, a lot of things. This is, I think that this is was this was the the, the, the main program. Otherwise, I've got a lot of satisfaction to uh, to manage the launch range due to the variety of uh, problems, variety of questions to deal with. I've got a very wide view of problem of society too, 
uh, I've learned a lot of things about uh, French Guiana, for instance. Uh, it was a, a very astonishing uh, <laughs> country. So, and uh, I think uh, it was a very good experience for, for guys. Thank you very much for joining us on the on the podcast. Um, I, I better let you go off because I know you're just about to have another meeting. So uh, thanks thanks for joining us. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive! There we go. Well, what a legend. Complete and utter legend. We only interview legends. If you've enjoyed today's or any other episode of the Interplanetary Podcast, please like and subscribe on your favourite podcast place, like iTunes or Stitcher or one of those places or maybe listen to it on soundcloud or spotify or google play wherever you would like to listen to it and if you'd like to be involved even more then maybe pop over to interplantry.org.uk and have a look around there and you might find a little link to our patreon page or you can just go directly to patreon forward slash interplanetary patreon.com forward slash interplanetary where you can get fully involved with the show and become a patron of the show that is what i'm talking about what he said people and you too can put the ace back into space so matt we've been talking about the supermoon just now um Mm -hmm. well actually it does appear seven percent on average bigger than the normal moon in the sky Mm -hmm. what do you think about that I do think that's really good. So how much bigger is it than the smallest full moon? It's between 12 and 14% bigger than the smallest moon. Okay, so there's so there's a 14%. That's the biggest swing. See, supermoon, you see what I'm saying? It's only 7% bigger than the average moon. And I think because where it is on uh, in terms of its distance to the horizon has much more of an effect in its apparent size than that. Matt, you wait. I'm going to get 7% bigger and you're going to notice. <laughs> if you were 7% bigger, how much? How much? How tall does that make you? <laughs> I'd, I'd probably be approaching 5 foot 8. Yeah, I, think that's about, <laughs> I don't think I would notice. I think that's the difference between you, uh, you in a pair of vans and you in your Cuban heels. You, you'd think I just got a new pair of heels, yeah. I've, do you know, there's a, there's a really good story that I've missed. One of our, one of our patrons, Jamie... Sent yeah. this in. I think it's Bob Hodges again. Oh, yeah, love Bob. He sent in the, this uh, thing on the BBC. The Black Arrow, hmm. so UK's space rocket, returns home from Australia. So the UK's only rocket to successfully launch a satellite into orbit is to be unveiled in Scotland after a 10,000-mile journey back home. The Black Arrow projectile had lain at its crash site in the South Australian outback for 48 years. Yeah, wow. This, this is, yeah. So, and yes, and uh, Sky Rora have, um, have been involved in um, getting what they consider one of the most important British space artifacts there is, if not the most important space artifact. And they're kind of right. So this is the Black Arrow that launched Prospero uh, back in seventy one, into in, into UK's only orbital launch, and they've managed to get this <laughs> hulk of metal lying on the floor and bring it back to Scotland. 
That is genius. I love that. Thanks, Bob. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Because I don't know how I didn't ever didn't see that story, but it's it's huge, isn't it? So thanks, Bob. It's seven percent bigger than we thought. I mean, if we owned a pub, Matt, mm-hmm. Bob would be like one of our regular drinkers that you know, glass behind the bar. We'd ask about how his family are. That's that's <laughs> that's the that's the relationship we've got with our listeners. Totes. Take it easy. Have a good weekend. But I will be thinking about the thing I think about most in life, and that's Europa. Even though I told you last week how unlikely it was that it would have any kind of complex Yeah, but you said the word unlikely, you didn't say impossible. And even if you did, it wouldn't stop me from lying back on my sofa and dreaming about these alien whales, or whalians, as we like to know them. Whalians, I like it. There we go. Well, on that note, let's say goodbye to the Spodcats. Goodbye, Spodcats. Bye-bye, Spodcats. (laughs) 